This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to a bit of a bonus edition of Talking Dirty over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking almost autumnal in this swelteringly hot weather. Carefully don't melt Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. And cool as a, cool as a cucumber in Cambridgeshire in quite this morning, we have thought as Maria Sophia Fredrickson looking absolutely, well, you look as cool as a cucumber, you really well. do. I don't wear white very often. The reason I'm wearing this T-shirt is because I bought it. It's a bit, it's a bit oversized and ridiculous, but it's got the most hilarious <laughs> gardening flower with a hose pipe and a watering can. Um, Come rain or shine, it says across the top. And it was like the most me T-shirt ever. So it looks like I'm very plain and cool as a cucumber today, but actually all the colours. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into the plants, um, we should say thank you very much for all the get well soon messages. It was just a cough or a sniffle, but it did get in the way of us recording, mostly because you didn't have any voice, Alan. No, I didn't. I think it was probably a bit of hay fever as much as anything. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the voice absolutely went, uh, oh, hey, it was like that, you know, <laughs> which is not probably the best thing to listen to. So when I talked to you, when I came to the garden, you did have a rather husky, deep voice, sexy yeah. thing going on. <laughs> yes, and I thought it was going to last a couple of days. And then you, you called me and I said, no, it's still here. <laughs> well... So anyway. sorry we missed last week and we've got loads of guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. But I said I was at East Ruston Old Vicarage and we just have to stop everything and talk about the garden and some of the plants that are looking fabulous at the moment. Because my phone, I must have taken about 400 photos as I walked around <laughs> and it was nice, actually. So often I come and we're working on something or you focus on one particular area. But I actually walked around basically the whole thing and well, I have a long list of things I'd like to talk about. We probably won't have time for all of them. But let's start with your Brugmansias, Alan, because they are one of the things you're famous for, these huge containerized Brugmansias with their huge orangey trumpets, particularly yeah. the kind of orangey colour that you grow. And I posted a photo of them just coming into bloom on Instagram and Twitter and got loads of questions about how you overwinter them, how you make them look so fabulous, what are your feeding and care tips and techniques. So let's start there. Well, I mean, Brugs never cease to amaze me because um, where should we start? Should we start? Well, we get them out of the greenhouse and we put them into these huge containers. But before we do that, we completely empty these containers of every, every last vestige of soil and compost that's already in there. And I start my containers, which I suppose we ought to say are probably about in excess of three feet cubed. Um, they're quite large. They are cubed for the very reason that these brugs get very top heavy. And if they were in a container that gets smaller, smaller towards the bottom, they blow over. I know we've done it. <laughs> so that was a mistake I didn't want to repeat. Um, and so we got these, these very square foul lead containers. Um, and the bottom third of the compost is well rotted manure. 
So we do the usual things. I mean, the the, the containers are raised off the ground slightly so that the drainage is not impeded. They then have crocs in the bottom. Some people dispute the fact that you probably don't need crocs in pots nowadays. That's the way we've done it. It works for us. That's the way we're going to continue to do it. And then we put in our well-rotted farmyard manure. And then we have our own mixture of compost, which is rich. Um, it's basically... Um, our regular potting compost, which we use for everything on the nursery and in, and in the greenhouses. And to that, I add um, John in his number three in equal parts. Um, and then another dose of pelleted chicken manure. It can be that or it can be whatever we've got to hand, really. But if we've got plenty of, uh, of garden compost and um, we never have enough of that, some of that gets mixed in as well. Um, and it's basically a third of this, a third of that, and a third of something else, if you know what I mean. I don't try to make it too complicated. Then we plant the brugs into that and they go into that, into the pots and they sit there for a fortnight just to get their roots out a little bit. Um, also, at the, when they're planted, I top dress them with um, blood fish and bone meal. So you see, it's a rich diet. It really is a rich diet. Now, after about two weeks of them being in situ, it might be a week, it might be three, depends on the timetable. I plant around the edge of the brugs. And they can be that can be anything that I got to hand at this particular. Um, the ones we're talking about, these took a picture of. They have salvia kisses and wishes in there with them. Um, they have some um, oh, they're, they're heliotropes, heliotropes yeah. because they're where people sit to eat and the smell that sweet yep. smell wafting yep. from the containers. Absolutely, they've got some foliage, they've got plectranthus, um, and a pelagonium. There's a pelagonium that I like using particularly it's a zonal pelagonium it's single flowered uh two reasons i like it one is it's called gazelle and that you will you will gather it races around and it has um longer pieces of stem between each leaf node so it kind of scrambles so as everything goes around it keeps pace and it grows as well it's also self-cleaning which means that the petals drop and the flower heads eventually drop the old flower heads eventually drop although we do endeavour to keep them clean ourselves if we, if we have to. Um, and, and basically, that's it. And then um, once the brugs have been in and the, the filling around the base of them goes in, we start to water and feed immediately. And we feed at every watering. And now these brugs have, um, they have a minimum of four gallons every three days. Um, so it's Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And if they need topping up on Saturday or Sunday, Muggins does it. <laughs> Um, but there's a minimum of four gallons and we mix the feed up and we feed it. The strength is half strength. And my thinking behind that is that my plants are getting a regular dose of food, not a big rush. And then they have to wait for the next one. So it's a continual, um, a continual um, feed, if you like. And that works for us. I don't know whether people will, will agree or disagree with it. I don't really care um, <laughs> because I know that it works for me. And if it works for me, then that's fine. Um, and I mean, the brugs never cease to amaze me because at the end of the season, they can have 250 flowers on each one. I mean, it is amazing. The, the most nuisance task of all is that you have to sweep up the, the trumpets that they drop from the day before every day. <laughs> um, because, you know, the flowers are big, they're hanging. Now, this all stemmed really from... Me, as a child, having Brugmanches, they were then called Daturas. Um, and Granny had one. She had a double white-flowered one. Um, and it was a struggle to keep it going without heat in her little greenhouse, but she managed to keep it going with wrapping it up in newspaper in bad weather and goodness knows what. 
Um, and we also had um, a, a lamp, a para paraffin lamp called a Putnam lamp. And you used to put them underneath your cars in the days before um, antifreeze um, so that the car engine didn't freeze up. And we had one of those in the greenhouse, which just raised the temperature a little bit. But Granny's was in a smallish pot, I suppose probably about an eight inch pot. And she, she kept it as a plant. You'd put it on the table and there would be its hanging trumpets, um, which was lovely. And in the evening, you know, it would admit this delicious scent. Um, and everybody thought it was wonderful. And then I went to Spain, I think it was, and I saw Brugmantias growing as trees. And I was walking underneath them and I looked up and I thought, that's what I want to see. And the only way I could do that in this country, um, because they're not hardy plants, is to elevate them. And, 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 but you've got to elevate a big plant. <laughs> so that's what we did. And that's the reason for the, the rugs in those big containers. Now, when it comes to the end of the season and we have to take them all to pieces, what do we do? Well, I give the rugs a big haircut. They have about two thirds of their top growth removed. Um, and they do look very sorry for themselves at this stage. We then take away all the plants growing around them and any, any plants that I need to, I use for cuttings for the next generation, uh, for the following year. And then we dig the brug out, but we take its roots back by that through two thirds too. So we're able to lift it into a much smaller pot, which is still pretty big, um, but we're able to man manhandle it under glass where it spends the winter. Now, if anybody does this, I would just warn you, they always look as if they're going to die, but they don't. Providing you can keep them frost-free through the winter, um, they will bloom for you next year again. Um, and what we do is we keep them just frost-free throughout the winter to save as much money as we can. And then I suppose about the beginning of March, we increase the heat a little bit, uh, just to give enough heat to kick them into growth. And then I've got a, a feed that we could, it's called Top Dress. And I think it's used by garden centers and nurseries and you put it on the top of the compost and it releases food at each watering. And so we put some of that on the pot, top of the pots and you can instantly, almost instantly see the foliage on your Brugmantias darken, which is nitrogen, of course, um, which is meaning means that they're, they're starting, starting into growth, which is what you want. And really, basically, that's it. And do you overwinter every single one under glass? Are there any that you sort of test because I know you love to test the hardiness of plants as the climate yeah, I do I have left them outside and well I, <laughs> I can give you an instance it's rather funny because this this lady came to the garden in, in October and she said to me oh you you take your rugs in do you we, we we leave ours out you know so I said and when do they start flowering and she said well um actually they haven't yet <laughs> well now you see that's the whole summer gone we're into October um and she hasn't had a flower in her brugmansias if that's what she if that gives her if it gives her a thrill fine yeah. but i mean i want to have flowers and scents and the only way i can do that at the moment yeah. with this uh, climate that we've got is overwinter them under glass just out of interest how long did it take you to come to this fantastic brugmansia care schedule and system you know did you just experiment immediately with filling a third of the container with manure and feeding them all the time and it worked or did you gradually increase the feed Oh, it became obvious. Um, it became obvious to me very, very quickly. Um, once I started to grow Brugmantias for myself, it became rather obvious that they don't like being in small containers. Um, I don't know how sometimes you, if you see imported Brugs into this country or you used to, I mean, at flower shows like the Sandringham flower show, for instance, you'd see a plant in probably a 10 inch pot with 25 flowers on it. Now, I don't know how they did that, but it must be 
I suspect some kind of ebb and flow irrigation system, which is packed with feed. I mean, the Dutch are very expert at doing this. And these plants smacked of Dutchness, <laughs> if there is such a word. Um, but no, it became obvious to me that they don't like being in small pots and they are greedy plants. Um, and they also don't like being dry. If you keep them too dry, they get red spider mite. If the atmosphere around them is very dry, they get red spider mite. So, you know, you do your utmost to keep that at, that at bay. Um, and it just, I suppose it just kind of snowballed. And I, I sort of thought, well, you know, this year they're that size. Let's get them into a bigger container and see what happens next year. And <laughs> so on and so forth. And that was really, re was really how it happened. And I mean, I think we've, we've probably got it down to a reasonably fine art now. And, and uh, it works for us, works well. Well, they're fabulous and you are kind of famous for them. You're famous for a lot of really amazing containers. I did look at one of your displays where you have pot upon pot upon pot. So it's like a kind of cascade of yeah. plants and thought that would probably be a large portion of the lawn in my garden. So it's on like a big scale um, with all kinds of interesting plants. You mentioned lots of heliotropes and plectranthus, lots of um, erigeron, lavender lady and yeah. that lovely little petunia. Is it petunia exerta? Yes, it is. That came from Derry Watkins, who's one of our guests we have on the podcast quite frequently. Um, it's, it's a variety that comes from uh, South America where it grows in shade. It's got the most brilliant red flowers. They're more trumpet shaped than regular petunias. Well, petunias have been bred to be, you know, <laughs> they practically turn themselves inside out and they look faintly vulgar. Um, but this one has sort of more trumpet shaped and pointed petals. Very uh, refined. Yes, it is refined. And it's pollinated in its natural habitat by hummingbirds. Um, and it grows in shade, as I said. Um, and I've tried another one as well, a white one, which I didn't use because I didn't like it. I got it into plant, didn't like it. Um, <laughs> it. It just looked like a weedy white petunia. And I don't like weedy white petunia. So, so no, we didn't use that one. Um, but, but petunia exerta, you've got to keep the parent plants away from other petunias, otherwise they would cross with them. Now, whether those crosses would be interesting or not, I don't know. I'm always of the mind, you see, my, my cup is always half full. Um, so I'm always thinking that if I save some petunia exerta seed that's been cavorting with another purple petunia next door, what might I get? And I haven't tried that yet, so I don't know. But I've always got three or four pots of this petunia exerta secreted away in a glass house so that it doesn't get cross-pollinated. So I saved my own seed. Wonderful. Um, obviously, containers, one thing you're famous for at East Rust, and the other, I mean, well, there are about five million things, but the <laughs> Desert Wash, which oh, yeah. is, is Graham's baby, I suppose, this extraordinary, yeah. unique landscape in the UK, a kind of Arizonian riverbed. Uh, yeah. And I have loved it every year that I've been coming to your garden, which is well over 10 years. But I don't know why, but this year it just seems to be like the desert wash on steroids. It is even more fabulous. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, that's that's a garden that is evolving all the time because, um, you know, it gets <laughs> it gets weeds in it. And the weeds that it gets are, are agapanthus, dare I say it. Uh, I was having a guide, a guide a tour around the garden and the people were admiring these agapanthus. And I said, well, they're all going. What do you mean they're going? I said, well, they're a weed. And not a weed, you can't get rid of those. <laughs> so on and so forth. But, I mean, they're not what's needed there. They, they had become a bit, a bit of a weed. There's still some there, of course. Um, and they're all probably always will be. And they put themselves into the most remarkable places. And because it is a stony landscape, of course, it is an ide ideal seedbed. Because, you know, in times of drought, that they don't, the, underneath those stones, it remains moist, thanks to condensation. Um, and so, yeah. 
And, and do you say a seed bed and through the whole thing? So you've got these enormous aloes and all these fabulous deserty plants and then these kind of pointillist pops of verbena bonariensis and the schultzias and the odd verbascum spire just all and lichnis. I mean, all these wonderful, bright, zingy colours to combine with all the various big, chunky, glaucous um, yeah. sort of succulent leaves. It, it's just... Yeah, you just want to stop and look at it for hours. Yes, well, you do. And I mean, there's a Californian puppy there, Schultzie, of course. Um, and the other thing that's there is a little Mediterranean geranium called geranium incarnum. Now, geranium incarnum flowers from white through to, to a, a fairly, almost a good purple, but not quite. Um, but it can be very wishy-washy and dirty nickery in between. So if you see colours you don't like, you whip them out um, in the hope that you're going to just retain the, the better colours. Um, but it's fun doing that. I mean, it's, it's interesting. When you mentioned verbascum spires, I do tend to leave the verbascums in there um, when we're weeding because they, you know, those vertical shapes are very important. And the other important um, plant in there is teasels. People don't sort of seem to see the teasels quite so much. But I mean, teasels are a great plant for bird life and all the rest of it. And I've always wondered, and I don't know the reason, um, and I've always wondered where the teasel leaf joins the stem, there's a kind of thickened base to it. If you look in that, even in times of droughts we're going through at the moment, you will see there's always water in there. Now, how does that get there? Yeah. And, and what is the purpose of it? I mean, it must have a purpose. Uh, whether it's to feed the plant or to feed wildlife or what, I don't know. So if there's anybody watching this that knows what the purpose of that is on teasels, dipsackers, um, please let us know. It'd be interesting. If you are a Teasel fan, in one of our Joe Sharman episodes, I'll try and find it and link to it. Um, we covered a few different Teasels. If you want to increase your Teasel collection, he's a big fan of Dipsacus as well. Talking of uprights through um, the Desert Wash, uh, there's a wonderful aloe that is flowering like in Ophophia. Um, is it Striatula or is it another one? Uh, it's, 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 well, we'll call it Aloe Striatula. Um, it's now got another name, which has got about 19 letters in it, but I mean, not quite that many. But um, anyway, it's been popped into another genus, I think. Well, Aloe striatulia, striatula, it looks like um, yellow and green red hot pokers all over it. Um, and it is, it is a, 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 a just stunning plant. Yeah. Now, that, in, the, in the 1970s, that was a pot plant that, that we had in, in our flat in London. Um, and then it came up to Norfolk and then I don't know what happened to it. We got neglected as things do. You know, you get tired of them and you neglect them. Um, horrible admission, but it's true. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and I was going to throw it out and Graham said, give it to me and I'll put it in the desert. And so he did. And there it is. And I mean, it must be, uh, I suppose, five feet across today um, by three feet and, you know, and, and this great colony of it. Um, now, three times since it's been planted in the desert, it's been raised to the ground by bad weather. Um, and then it's re-emerged from below ground. And I think that's quite an interesting point because, you know, when, when we have occasionally these hard winters, and I think the last one was 2008, 9, um, plants such as our bananas, um, the, well, the false banana, Musa Bazdu, they were raised to the ground. And I thought, oh, well, what should we grow now, you know? And then... I think it was quite late. It must have been end of March, beginning of April, at the earliest anyway. One little shoot appeared and then another and then another. And then there were so many I couldn't count them. And I mean, lots of them crowded out, but they came back. So they resurrected themselves from an herbaceous root, rootstock beneath the ground. So never be in too much of a hurry to pull things out, um, even if they do look rather wretched. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, if we'd taken the top off that 
uh, a lowest dryer tula when it got frosted and it looked awful. If we'd taken the top off, it could have well killed the whole plant because that top is actually adding a little bit more insulation throughout the bad weather. Um, But I think it's fascinating to note that they come back, shall we say, with alacrity, dare I say that. (laughs) And I love it even more to know its history, to know how it started in your flat in London and how lovely to be able to look at this absolutely monstrous aloe with I don't even know I mean it felt like scores of flower spikes I don't know how many flower spikes there are but to look at that and think it it's been with you for all those years and it started life in a little pot in a flat yeah I go past it and say hello friend (laughs) (laughs) you have to call her a name it needs a jazzy one it needs a a real (laughs) show-stopping in spotlights name because it's that kind of plant um I have a soft spot in my heart for Burkea purpurea, and uh, you have a fabulous clump of that, that wonderful sort of thistly thing that has lovely purpley lilac-y daisies. Though I did have to admit to the other half that I've got, I've put this in our garden and uh, he looked at this huge carpet of thistle <laughs> and thought, goodness. <laughs> What's got into you, woman? <laughs> Probably not everyone's cup of tea, but it was lovely to see such a huge clump of it because it's not a plant you see everywhere necessarily no, it's not you quite often see it tucked into a, or seeded I suppose into a wall somewhere where they've grown it and it's seeded in and you only see a little yeah. bit of it but it was great to see so many of these daisies well, I think one of the things about the desert wash is the fact that m- lots of the plants that are grown there I mean you 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 could see some of the newer additions where Graham's weeded the some of the older plants out and he's put new um, agaves aloes and all those kind of things in um, and he, he buys them as seeds or seedlings or offsets, which are then normally handed to me as a bag. See what you can do with those, you know. Um, and they're grown for probably two or three years in the greenhouse, and then they're planted out. And it's then that they have their little hats of um, their little domes over the top for the winter, their first winter. You know, when, once you've cleared away, you suddenly get, you can see the scale of the rest of the plants that are growing in that, in that desert wash. And you can see why you don't see that many plants like the desert wash plants, the agaves, the aloes, the desolirians and the lilias, because they are big. They are enormous. And we have one there, which is a, 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 a linear, I think, um, and we, we were one of three gardens that were given a plant of this in the, in the British Isles. Uh, the other two, unfortunately, died because of bad weather. We, ours is alive. And the mother plant had eight stems of flowers on last year. But she then self-seeded beside her. So she has a daughter. And beside the daughter, there's a granddaughter. And the granddaughter flowered for the first time this year with two enormous spikes. Now, all of these plants, they... They don't flower every year. And the reason they don't flower every year is because the central rosette that produces the flower then dies. So that rosette, if you like, is monocarpy, but that just dies. But it leaves behind a legacy of offsets from underneath the, the flower. And those offsets then in turn have to get large enough and strong enough to produce flowers. So probably another three or four years before they did that. But you can see if you start with a single rosette, then you get a four, and then those four become 16, and, you know, and so on and so forth. You can see just how big these plants are capable of getting. Yeah. I'll be talking of big monocarpic plants, your Echium pinananas, which again are a plant I'll always associate with you, even though nowadays with the climate getting milder, they, they are starting to be visible more and more. There's actually someone about 
four doors down from where my mum lives in suburban you know outskirts of Norwich where they have loads of them and they tend to seed near the path and I always yeah. think yeah. you know what do the pedestrians of Sproustons think walking past all these big echium spires in a front garden um I'm always tempted to put one in our front garden but I, I think I think the other half might go and chop it down when I wasn't looking. <laughs> uh, but I mean, they they were looking fabulous. And it was lovely watching them. I came when they're kind of coming towards the end of their flowering, I suppose. So you just have this little kind of peppering of that lovely summery blue up the spire. And they were so fat that they were wobbling in the breeze. Yeah. And they're <laughs> like still covered creatures. in bees. They are still yeah. covered in bees. I mean, that's the amazing thing. We call them bee towers because they're just completely... I've got one actually flowering in the autumn border here, which uh, is one that I grew from seed. It's supposed to be white. Well, if I, it's a dirty white. Shall I say this? If your whites looked like this, you would never hang them on the washing line because you'd be ashamed of them. And for that reason, I don't like it because it is this murky, dirty, greyish white. Um, And I thought, oh, that can come out. I don't like that. So we'll get rid of that. And then I thought, but don't be so silly because it's absolutely full of bees and there's no other white ones in or around that area. So leave it um, and let it be beneficial to all the insects that want to use it. So it, it, it won, won me over in the, in the end, but there we are. I'm such a soft touch with anything the pollinators are over. I talk about this often. I have this terrible problem with my stachys and that it starts to look so dreadful, but every time I go to cut a flower spike off, it's covered in bees. And so I just are oh, fine stay another day and I'll cut you off tomorrow. And that is generally, that goes on for weeks where I want to tidy it up, but it's still covered in bees and I just can't bring myself. Yeah, I think that happens to everybody in actual fact, because, you know, well, I think we are much, much more um, aware of the fact that we need to be providing plants that are for for insects, insects in general, Um, the good and the bad, I'm afraid, you know, because we have to try and strike this balance. I mean, in the in the Pelagonium house here, we have a collection of lovely old fashioned Pelagonium. Some of the ones that my grandmother grew. Um, there's Paul Crample, which is probably the most famous red flag zonal Pelagonium because it's used in the beds outside Buckingham Palace. And I think there was a story that when King George V and uh, when he was away somewhere or sick or ill or something, and Queen Mary decided she didn't like this these bright red pelagonians, the, the colour of a guardsman's tunic. My mother always, a grandmother always referred to that, um, that pelagonium as guardsman's red for that reason. But she changed, the Queen Mary changed it to pink. And when the king heard of it, he ordered that the pink be removed and the red reinstated. So <laughs> I don't know quite what went on there, but um, I think he probably thought that May, he's his Queen Mary... She was called May. He probably thought May had had a, a senior moment and she lost her head or something. So, <laughs> there we are. So a Pelagonium. I have this collection of pellets and we have a rather bad infestation, talking about pests and pollinators and all of that kind of thing, of whitefly. Um, and whitefly, of course, we all know that it's not a fly, it's a moth. Barry Gaten so very, very kindly reminded me I once on BBC Radio Norfolk when we were talking about it. And... Um, Anyway, this little white fly, um, it is a great pest. And so I was hanging yesterday, hanging little traps, which have the um, little wasp, Incarsia wasp, eggs in them. And the Incarsia wasp eggs will, will hatch. And then the wasp will prey on the, on the white fly and hopefully we'll get a balance. So we're not all white fly, you know. Seems to be a bumpy year for black fly as well in my garden. 
Well, I haven't noticed that much in, in I, well, I have a little bit. I've noticed blackfly on nasturtiums, in actual fact. Um, we have some on our broad beans, but we normally take the tips out of broad beans to prevent that, um, which incidentally you can, don't, don't throw them away, steam them very lightly and eat them, enjoy them. They're absolutely delicious. delicious. Um, but yeah, uh, there's been Never a Never mind of- horticulturalist, you're quite the top chef. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's just uh, it, it is a question of waste not want not. I think you know. I mean, yesterday we we well Ian did this for me actually. He came in and he said, the "Peaches they need harvesting now." And I said, "Oh, well, Ian, I can't eat all those peaches." Anyway, I came back into the house at night and there's two trays in my kitchen filled with peaches. In other words, you will pick them now. <laughs> you don't. I'll do it for you. So I and I mean I've just put a big tray on the plant stand so that visitors to the garden, if they wish, can help themselves. Um, and if they want to take enough to make a little bit of peach jam or whatever they do with it, then please do. But I mean, it's a shame to waste these things just to let them. But then you see, I say that, but I don't think that anything really goes to waste, does it? Because you know we've got lots of apples, and some of the apples that land on the ground, I leave them. Well, they're eaten by the birds or other bits and pieces, you know. So they it. This, the whole world continually recycles itself. Yeah. Um, it's just for us to direct that recycling sometimes, perhaps. I do wish I lived a bit closer, though. Loads of features. <laughs> I could have helped with that excess. Uh, but talking of, of edibles, your veg patch, which I don't have any space to grow my own. I did discover the other half. He's quite interested in growing his own. So next garden, hopefully we can assign a bit to, to a veg patch. But I'm always completely smitten with how you grow veg because there's so much colour in your veg patch and some of it will be edibles, I suppose, but it's often the the plants that are there to sort of be companions to the, the veg and to bring pollinators in. You have this fab combination of calendulas in every kind of colour, so bright oranges and yellows and those lovely buff creamy ones that are very trendy. And then popping through them, pink Schultzias, so pink Californian poppies with yellows and orange what a summer like joyful color oh it's like well, Lantana Camara, all those colors together <laughs> yes it is and it started life really I suppose we started doing that um really to um we use plants like Limnanthes douglasii the poached egg flower or whatever it's called um <laughs> because that um is is a great favorite of um hoverflies and hoverflies are good for pollinating and things and all the rest of it. So we use that to bring them in. And but then you know it's not just it's not just the pollinators. This garden is not just for the pollinators. It's also for the joy of the people that visit, and it's also for the joy of the people that work in in these various areas. And I suddenly thought, you know, when people had started growing their own cut flowers, and we'd have rows of cut flowers like helichrysums and larkspurs and stuff like that. Um, and then I suddenly thought, well, you know, why don't we just incorporate this around the border, the edge of the vegetable plot? Um, so we're not just looking at rows of what could be boring green stuff. Um, although to me, I don't think it is boring green stuff, but to some people it might be. And it's it, it's just to, to give a bit of joy into the heart of the person that has to work there. Um, if it brings, which it does, pollinators in, then, then so much the better. And talking of, of flowers for cutting, you get into the walled garden and you do have, you know, your row of sweet peas and you've got lots of lovely delphiniums. But I think what I like about your walled garden, you, you, you know, get used to going to stately homes and visiting walled gardens and things are quite orderly. Actually, in several places, they might not be able to quite manage gardening all of it. So there might be a few bare areas or areas which are in progress. 
you walk into your walled garden and it is just an absolute explosion. It is just ebullience. It is everything growing to its fullest, to its maximum and kind of jostling for their space in the garden. And it's just joy. It's joy in a walled garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it really is. Um, it, it's me. I mean, it is me. I have to say that because it, it's it's over the top. It's over here and it, uh, everywhere. <laughs> um, when I where, where I grew up, we had a wall garden. It's, well, this is going to sound frightfully grand, but believe me, it wasn't. The, the vegetable garden was partly walled, two and a half sides were moat, so it was partly moated and partly walled. That sounds grand. It was. N- what? But not when I knew it. It wasn't because. You know, I mean, uh, I was born um, after the Second World War and there was no, uh, things were in disrepair after six years of war or whatever it is. And um, and the men all went away to, to fight and there was no, ma- no men, no money, no materials to mend anything. And so the, the, the peach house, it still had its peaches, but not much of its glass left. Um, the, the vinery or whatever it was where the grapes were grown, they still had their vines. But again, not much glass was left. Um, the boiler room, which was on the north side of this um, binary and greenhouse, that had long fallen into disrepair. Um, and there, but there were the remains of things that I remember being so thrilled to have. Huge range of uh, cold frames, which we were able to use. Um, they were fine. Um, in the glass house, I seem to remember, there were enormous cast iron heating pipes. And on the top of these heating pipes, there was a trough. And this trough was used to fit, they filled it with water. So the water gradually evaporated in the heat and created a buoyant atmosphere for all the plants to grow and thrive in. How clever. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating. It was fascinating. But it was from that, I think, that I had this feeling of, like you said, ebullience. You know, I wanted this overfulness. And my other thing is that, well, if if you've got five plants growing in a spot where there really should only be three, there won't be any room for weeds. So, you know, there's that sort of philosophy as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it is. um, And you mentioned delphiniums in there. The delphiniums I've got in there, names are long gone, but there are two that are particularly nice. Um, One is a kind of pale, pale blue and mauve double with a dark B in the middle. And the other ones are very, very dark, almost papal purple double. Now, I've never tried, and I don't know why I've never done it. All, all the years I've been gardening, I've never taken delphinium cuttings. And I suddenly thought, well, why don't you do, do, do a batch of cuttings in early spring? Because you do them really before the, the plant is growing fully. Um, and, you know, take five or six cuttings off each one and just see what happens. Because people are always wanting to buy them. And so, you know, it could be a nice little sideline, couldn't it? You know, I'm selling delphiniums. And it says something that in, I don't know how big is your walled garden? Well, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, never, never calculated the acreage of it, but I mean, it can't, it's not an acre, it's not that big. But it's quite sizable, you know, I suppose in comparison to my garden, everything is sizable, but it's, it's still a good space. And there are so yeah. many different plants in there. And yet somehow those delphiniums still stop you and make you consider them yeah. and take photos of them and want them so it does say a lot about how beautiful they are and why yeah, yeah and the, other, the other thing that i've succeeded in growing there which i think is really quite remarkable well it's not remarkable because the climate has allowed us to do it now and that's alstromerias um you know and alstromerias grown as cut flowers are absolutely brilliant providing you've got a fairly light but rich soil um and you remember to pull the flowers so that you pull this stem away from the root underneath because that 
tearing away the, from the root initiates another bud to form, which will in turn produce you another flower. Um, and I think probably they're underrated as garden plants at the moment because um, th there's such a, a plethora of different colours and sizes that you can grow today. Um, there's, there's a darling little dwarf <coughs> ones, which of course I'm going to hate because I don't like dwarf anything. <laughs> Um, but they're ideal for smaller gardens and you just treat them exactly the same way as you do the larger flat hybrids. That's what um, I should have, except I got Indian summer instead. But it's yeah. only... It's well, only who, doesn't, who doesn't grow Indian summer? What rewarding plant that is. Fabulous. It's yeah. the foliage, the flowers, all of it. Mm. Um, though it's planted near the stachys, which is great once the stachys flowers have gone over. At the moment... Not the best clash. You know, sometimes a clash is good. Sometimes it really isn't. And I'm just putting up with it. Just grin and bear it. <laughs> that reminds me of a remark that Robin Lane Fox, who's the garden columnist for the Financial Times, and I still read him every Saturday in, 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 in the Financial Times. But he rather unkindly um, said after Christopher Lloyd's death, he said, you know, I often wondered whether or not he was colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who go past my front garden are thinking the same thing about me at the moment. But well, you know, Chris enjoyed he enjoyed colours that thought, um, and I think his philosophy probably is that there are there, there are no two colours that really don't go together. It's just your silly taste. <laughs> you don't like them. Well, I will comfort myself by thinking maybe he would approve of the combination, but I'm not sure anybody does. But there we go. I know. I'm just dealing with it. You just um, mentioned you just mentioned the colour clashings, if you like, around our vegetable garden. You find it joyous. I find it joyous. If other people don't find it joyous, then look the other way. <laughs> Quite. So I have to say if anyone comments on it. Uh, you were just talking about double delphiniums, another double flower that really caught my attention your, I think it's your front courtyard by your front door where you've got your albizias in the pots and your postman's gate you often talk about. Um, mm. there, I'm sure I spotted a double lickness, which you was did. beautiful. Yes, you did. And I'm going to... I have to look at ways of propagating this because it is double. And because it's double, it is also sterile. And because it's sterile, it flowers for three times as long as an ordinary lickness because it doesn't set seed. And the physiology or whatever it is of the plant is thinking, well, I must try again and set seed, but it won't because it's sterile, but it doesn't know that. So it keeps on flowering, providing you take the old heads away. Um, and I bought those as plug plants um, and I've got several of them around the garden. So I'm going to have to look at, at um, propagating that just for me, really. Um, do you know what it's called off the top of your head? I do. It's called Gardener's World. Is it? Yes. <laughs> And I think it was one of those garden world, Gardens World shows. Do they have them at Birmingham or something? It was a sensation there the year that it, it was launched. I think everybody bought it, um, and you know it, it. It is a it is a very good plant. And I mean, I just say to people as well: uh, if you want to grow, oh, what what they call old shaggy was one variety of it. Marjorie Fish grew it. Astrant Astrantia. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you want to grow. Astrantias try to get varieties that are uh, sterile. Uh, Roma is one variety. It's a mid-pink coloured one. There's, there are several others, but do your research because those that are sterile flower for much longer than those that are not. And otherwise you get masses of seedlings everywhere as well. Yeah. I think I might so, have Roma and Shaggy. I think they're the two that I've got growing together and it's lovely. Yeah. I'm, I'm so yeah. pleased with that this year.
There's one called Ruby Wedding, which I think is even darker. The other thing that in your front courtyard, so I was fawning over the Lickness and then I turned round and looked at your front door and it's north north facing, I think, your it is front north door. Um, so it gives you some shady planting uh, potential. And I've heard you talk about your podophyllum spotty dotty in containers. <laughs> But my goodness, anybody who's, you know, heard mention of these containerized podophyllums and, and knows what they look like probably thought, oh, that looks good. It was astonishing. They are so big. Oh, it's like everything in your garden, isn't it? It's like the sentence you could say for so many things. They're just so much bigger than anything else I've ever seen. But they look so good in their containers. I've got, a, as we'd say in Norfolk, a squitty little one, which has got two and a half leaves, a little baby one coming up. And I kind of came home and looked at that and thought, grow, spotty, grow. <laughs> well, before you get too despondent about your squitty one, <laughs> um, my, my podophyllum spotted dotties, they've been in those pots for four years. Okay. I haven't repotted them, but I do, I mean, they do get the same watering regime as the Brugmantis. So they get fed at every watering, which again is three times a week. Um, and so that, that's the reason I think they look so prosperous. The moment they start to go downhill, I'll have them out of those pots and we'll redo the pots and put, put some back. But, you know, I'll divide them so that we have other plants throughout the garden. But the strange thing is, thought this, and I don't know the reason for this, is that the plants that are planted in the ground never, ever look as prosperous as those that are grown in pots. And I think it's probably because they, they have that little bit of extra attention to detail regarding their watering and their feeding. Because um, I think podophyllums, I mean, they're well known to, to be liking shade. And I suspect they like a bit more moisture than we have here in the northeast coast of Norfolk. Um, not, not only in the ground, but in the air as well. And if, they've got, if they're surrounded by other plants in pots, they've got that little humidity trap of them all. They're all <coughs> producing water um, and moisture into the atmosphere. Um, so, I mean, you talk about them looking fantastic, but I'll tell you what else I would say to people as a, as a, as a if you've got the space, this is only if you've got the space. And I know this from um, personal experience that <laughs> hosta we're growing called Empress Wu. Now, I don't know who Empress Wu was, but she must have been a big old bird because these hostas are just so big and so glamorous. When you elevate a hosta into a container, you immediately give it added importance because the poison of the plant, the plant naturally fans out, the leaves turn out and they just hold there beautifully, gracefully. I don't like those with um, I don't like them as much, and I say those with mauve flowers. Now, if you could breed an Empress Wu with the most pristine white flowers, I would love it. Um, somebody will at some point, I expect. Um, but I think some of the hostas with white flowers, there's a um, hosta plantigenea, I think it's called, or something very similar to that. That has white flowers very late in the year. Um, and that is a lovely thing. The flowers on that one are quite scented as well, which is probably something people don't necessarily know about but if you can get empress Wu into a pot and if you've got a place that's big enough i mean it, it would it would go a meter and a half across easily so beware Watch it was this. one of my uh, one of my favorite photos i've ever taken of you is you with empress Wu in those dual pots where you've got yeah. the kind of matching symmetrical pair and then just you in the middle and the hot summer's <laughs> day and they are oh it's fabulous it's not just my favorite whenever anyone sees that photo they just sort of fall about <laughs> Yeah, but they're so useful. You see, um, podophyllums and hostas are just two of the plants that are very useful for growing in shade um, because they were not necessarily overhead shade. But on the north side, if you've got if you if like me, your your front door faces north, you need to be 
you need to be aware of what you can grow and what you can't grow. The other thing that we we grow there is, is a, a fuchsia called Silver Lining, which came from Crick Farm originally. I didn't get it from them, but I mean, I think they introduced it. Um, and we've got two plants. One is up to about a metre and a half and the other is just over two metres tall. It's not very symmetrical, but I mean, it's just, I just want it to keep going just to see what we can get. And in Silver Lining, we have the silver leaves of the fuchsia, which is what it's named for, presumably. But there's tiny little bright carmine flowers, tiny little carmine buds, then tiny little carmine flowers. But they are the like little pointillist dots on a painting, aren't they? The way they stand out at you. Um, another interesting plant and good for shade, of course. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with my patio this summer, really trying to conquer it and put shady plants together. And I've got one one corner that I've actually been able to properly finish. I'm sort of working my way around and it's mostly chaos, but one corner with a lovely um, purple A. I don't know which Acer it is. It hasn't got its name anymore. It was the other half's 30th birthday present. So it's, it's finally getting to that point where it's getting a proper bark on its trunk, which is very exciting. Mm. So we've got that, which is- I think it's called Peter, actually. <laughs> I think it probably is. And underneath it, um, I've got your lovely Blecknum Chilensi you gave me, which is so fabulously structural. I've got Totnes Burgundy. I've put the Hack and a Cloa Oriola in there mm. to give a little splash. There's a couple of, of dark coloured coleus. But my absolute favourite is a fern my mum gave me as a present earlier in the year. And it's an Ethereum. I think it's called a Carnum. Otophora macanum, maybe it's you know one of those kind of Japanese painted ferns, but it's yeah. so limey. It's such a, it's just so refreshing to look at it, and it's been mm. so happy, and it sends up these sort of pinky fronds that then gradually sort of develop into lime. But it holds on to its colour more than I thought it would, and it just keeps sending fronds up, and it looks, yeah, it's just refreshing somehow. You um, about that blue fern next time, if you remember, yes. I've got one sitting in the greenhouse. You you gave me the curly one. Um, which I have to say uh, uh, went rather backwards when I first had it. Um, that was it... mine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, but it's it's recovering. It's underneath the bench in the shade in the warm, and it is recovering. But the the I can't remember the the, the selling name of it. Um, but it is that that blue fern and. Um, I've got a couple kicking around. You could put that in with your group. It's another colour. It's another shade. And it's another shape. Yeah. It'd be lovely. You <laughs> mentioned a little while ago about me testing hardiness. Well, I did test the hardiness of the blue fern um, last year because um, I put some, well, I had too many. And so I put them in a shady area of the garden and I covered them up for the winter with uh, uh, mulched them, really. Um, and I just thought, well, I live or die. They are alive. They are doing well. They're, they're you know, they, they shine out at you. Um, and I'm so pleased with them. But I have to bear in mind that this could be ethereal because, you know, I don't quite know how much cold they will take. We don't know what the next winter is going to throw at us. I mean, look at this summer with these almost record-breaking temperatures. Um, we could go the other way in the winter. Who knows? Um, if we do, I shall lose them. But at the moment, they are thriving. So it's, and I had them anyway, so it seems a shame not to, Rather than put them on the compost, he put them in the garden. I bought a fern that I'm fairly certain I saw on Mike Clifford's Instagram and might have been a FOMO on a past podcast. I'll link to it if I can find it. And I'm terrible at remembering its name. It's fabulous variegated uh, fern with a stripy leaf. Might be called Coniogramma emiensis or something like yes, that. Probably saying yes, wrong. Yes, yeah. So I bought one of those and was very worried that it wouldn't be hardy. And so I kept it inside and, and posted a, a photo and Everybody said it's perfectly hardy and um, lovely gardens with dogs on Instagram said I'm in Glasgow and it's hardy here. So this winter that'll be outside. <laughs> but I think 
as far as I can tell from other people's uh, comments online, it is absolute caviar to mollusks. So yeah. it's yeah. it's up on a, a metal table where all of my most slug attracting plants go. And that seems to keep them out of harm's way. But I was rather hoping to plant it somewhere. And I'm not sure I dare because I think it'll probably get sort of raised to the ground as soon as it's well, in front You'd be surprised how athletic slugs and snails can be if, if, <laughs> if caviar's up there and they're down there. They will go to great lengths to get it. Um, I am astonished they haven't re- one or two have made it up there. Top of the water, but I also put some things, and every single time I try to go uh, grow Dahlia Karma Choc, it gets eaten by slugs. And so this year's one uh, got eaten. And so now it's on top of the water butt in a pot waiting for it to get big enough so it might actually get into the garden one day. But some seemingly top of the water butt and the garden kind of patio table so far have kept things mostly safe. Yeah. <laughs> With a well, bit of slug can, watch as well. You could, you could always try put, putting that copper tape. Yeah. The BBC did it one morning, you know, on BBC Breakfast, and they put this piece of copper tape across the table and they plonked the snail down, and the snail slid completely across the copper tape, <laughs> which rather <laughs> defeated the object because the object was that the snail wouldn't cross it because it gets a, um, some kind of min- minute electric shock and won't, didn't, didn't like it. Well, this one didn't, didn't mind it at all. In actual fact, it shut. Honey, honey, chuck me. Mollusk <laughs> with a high pain threshold. Yes. <laughs> now, before, we, I don't know how we've talked. Well, I do know how we've talked for so long. We're talking about plants. That's generally how That's it goes. How. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking dirty. Before we move on to anything like Flomo, and my goodness, I have a lot of it, we must just talk about the plants growing on the back of your house. Um, if people oh, haven't yeah. visited East Ruston Old Vicarage, they might not know that it's it's really is like being in someone's garden because you are and you're walking around. And I think when people come for the first time, sometimes they think, am I allowed here? Is this yes, a private bit? You know, they're walking <laughs> along by the house, you know, probably sneaking a peek at all of your nice furniture inside. But what they need to do is stop, stop looking at whatever fantastic antiques you've got beyond the window and just look at what's growing on the house and in the bed in front of the house, because it is packed with interesting plants. It's strange, isn't it? Because you, you, completely threw me this morning because you you actually said that you were going to mention this because you'd looked at it the other day i on my way back this morning from turning off a sprinkler stood and looked at that very area and i just thought this is what i love <laughs> and basically what it is it's it's a conglomeration of plants all growing together on the south front of the house in the sun um, but there's so many plants there that they, they grow up and through each other. Um, and, you know, once you've got a good foundation of something growing there, and we have a very large um, Rosa Crimson Bengal, which I grew from a cutting, um, and we have a very large um, Nicotiana Glauca, which I grew from seed, um, which is now probably 12 feet tall, which is ridiculous, won't last forever. We have a pomegranate there, which has been there for years as well. That's a good foundation plant, as is one of the tree dahlias. The tree dahlia there brings its old growths through the winter. So the old woody stems to about a height of for five feet, I suppose, they come through the winter, all right, and then the side branches from those stems means that they flower much earlier. Normally tree dahlias don't flower until very, very late because our summers are not normally long enough for them to flower. Um, but this one started, the side branches started flowering in April. So, I mean, that's unheard of. Coming through all this, there are passion flowers this morning with the buds all bursting, I noticed. 
Um, there are abutilons, several different abutilons, but one particular called Ashford Red, which is one of the hardiest ones I've found. It's a large flower, bright red bell. Um, it's a good red. It's not an orangey red. It's a nice red. It's a pillar box red, really, I think. <clears throat> Slightly faded um, in, in the, the, the colour. It's more cerise than perhaps orange, if you see what I mean. Um, there's just so many plants. I can't think what else there is growing. Do you have, do you have any lobelia planted in oh, the front lobelia as well? Tupa. Lobelia tupa. That's it. I mean, that scrambles around underneath the soil and goes wherever it wants to. Um, but I mean, that the spires of that, the individual stems of that can reach way over six feet. Um, and I think this is the key to what I love in natural fact is that I like to be able to walk past a plant and look up at it. I don't necessarily want to look down at the low growing things and then gradually look up. I don't mind walking beside a plant. And if, you know, if, for instance, a tree dahlia, the structure of a tree dahlia, the, the, I mean, the growth on it looks a bit like a, I don't know, a bamboo that's gone wrong. Um, I mean, the, the, the stems are so robust and so thick and the, the big leaves on it. And I like to see that. I've just planted a dahlia cassinia in the bed outside my potting shed. And that already is two meters tall. It's going to go up more than that over the coming years, I hope. Um, but, you know, it's they are species dahlias and that's the way they naturally grow. They're not for everybody because not everybody has the room. My um, dahlia cassinia came from Avon bulbs and Avon bulbs have a, a, a specimen in their garden, wherever it is down in Somerset, uh, that's like two metres across. It's a, it's a huge, robust plant. Um, and, you know, that's the way to that's the way to I found another way of, of propagating dahlias earlier this year. I was in the autumn border and there's a, a very dark, dark leaf, very dark red double dahlia there. Um, and that's what exactly what it is. That's all it is, really. And I was piddling about fiddling about around the bottom of it, you know, weeding away and all the rest of it. And the tubers were now up above ground level. Um, they become so bulky. And I pulled it three or four chunks off, I actually got six, and puffed them up into two litre pots. And within four weeks, I've got big dahlia plants ready to go out somewhere else in the garden. So it's just taking the, if you take the dahlia tubers off the mother tuber, try and make sure that you get a little red little red bud on it. That's a, a new growth point. Um, even if you haven't got a little red bud, don't throw them away, put them in a seed tray, cover them with soil, and you will be surprised. How exciting. Mm. Well, I'm assuming at this point, anybody who's watched all the way through is going to have serious FLOMO. If you've been to East Rustonville Vicarage recently, well, I mean, you're drowning in FLOMO, <laughs> which I certainly am. Uh, FLOMO, of course, being that fear of missing out, you get about a flower or a plant. When I went to one of my favourite parts of your garden, because it reminds me of the first time I ever visited, is the exotic garden. And you walk up. Well, I entered it for the first time and I hope everybody who sees it enters up into that kind of wonderful wooden structure. You have this, as like everything else at East Ruston, enormous uh, big wooden uh, structure. And through that and all of the Vitus cognitia you have yeah. growing over it, you then see that fabulous fountain that looks a bit like a waterfall as you approach and, and see it from a distance. And then all of the fabulous T-Rex foliage and massive salvias and things that, that combine to, to form the energy of the exotic garden. Uh, so I, I love that because I remember when I was, goodness knows, in my early twenties and first entered that garden and really knew nothing about plants, but just was blown away. 
Now, I still love that part, but when you walk around and you look into the planting and you see all the interesting things that make up the tapestry of, uh, of all of the plant choices in the exotic garden, you've got so many different kufayas, Alan, and I want them all. <laughs> well, yeah, we do. Some are, some are annuals and some are, are perennials. And peren- two, two that are perennial with us is kufaya ignea. It's a green leaf variety, but it has um, little red flowers with little black tips that look like the ash on a cigar. Cufaya cyania, that's the one with the lime green foliage and the little cigar-shaped flowers, but the, there's yellow and orange on that one. There are other cufayas uh, that I grow, which are annuals, which I just love because we, we, we always used to grow them. I mean, my grandmother grew them, and, and I think it's they are the kind of plants you need to, to, to save seed of for yourself because quite often, you know, the seed is not available. And I do thank goodness for people like Derry Watkins who grows so many plants and saves so much seed because, you know, we don't always remember to do it. And, and it's people like Derry that does. We can go to her and we can get a couple of packets of seed and off we go again. And it's always wonderful. And, and I just have to say thank you to her this year for my giant um, salvia, salvia patens giant form. Mm. That is the most superb plant. And if anybody wants to grow something that is truly spectacular um, with a beautiful blue flower, grow the giant form of salvia patens. I haven't got it in the garden yet. I've got it in pots um, and I'm saving it very carefully this year because it doesn't produce huge amounts of seed. But um, I want to save some seed. And the other thing I think you should know about salvia patens is quite often they make tuberous roots bit like a dahlia, but much thinner, and it will regenerate from those roots. So if you can get it planted and get it into big pots, this is just me thinking ahead, long palms, keep it dry throughout the winter, bring it into growth next year. And when the new growth starts, take some cuttings and they will be the next generation. So, you know, on we go, onwards and upwards. I must say one of our lovely listeners or viewers uh, mm. messaged to say their flomo for that particular sal- salvia was so great. When Chris Davey from Seagate Nurseries joined us, I'll have to link to his podcast, which was kind of a bearded iris special because that's the, the bulk of what they do. But they've branched out to uh, to include so many different plants. There's lots of lovely salvias and things in that podcast as well. She wanted it so much. She actually got in touch and they were going to be at the same event. And so he brought one. <laughs> for her to get hold of so she could get it into her garden. As well, I, have to say, I have to say a big thank you to Chris, really, because he brought a plant of this giant salvia and gave me it when we had our plant fair here. And that's the one that's flowering at the moment in pots. So, I mean, you know, I'm keeping it. I've got younger ones coming along from the seed from Derry Watkins, but it was Chris who gave me one of his precious, precious plants. They're so very generous. They heard me. They didn't. I didn't even mention this on the podcast. I, I was talking online on Instagram about wanting Thuopsis, the little that little pink, yeah. lovely. Anyway, they brought me one of those. Just complete, <laughs> completely generous, lovely people as we you saw know, online. I, I saw that Thuopsis flower described as if you can imagine a visual blast from a horn, <laughs> a, a, you know, a, a musician, <laughs> a visual blast from a horn. And that's just what it looks like. It looks like a little trumpet shaped flower and all those stamens and things coming out is that other, is other notes aren't aren't they? I mean, it is quite an astonishing thing. You're always thinking about that. And it was amazing. I was looking back through my photos all the way back to, I don't know, 10 years ago when I first went to Beth Chateau's garden and I'd been taking photos of it and flomoing over it even before we'd come up with the term flomo. (laughs) Now I finally have one. So thank you very much to Seagate Nurseries. Um, I don't know where you're at with your flomo, Alan. Is there anything that's buzzing away that you want to get hold of? There are always things I want to get hold of. And I think <laughs> for as long as there's breath in my body, there always will be. Um, 
I don't know. I, I'm, I was going to say something common, like a coleus. Because um, I went past a garden centre the other day um, uh, when I was at the supermarket and I did see some coleus and I thought, no, don't, don't, don't. Because <laughs> I know that I'll go in and I won't buy one, I'll buy ten. Um, and I didn't really have anywhere to put them. But I do remember um, a great Dexter, I think it was on the side of the hovel, there's a, a, in a north-facing or east-facing border, I can't remember which, but Christo had grown... Um, coleus and they looked absolutely stunning but it, the, the trouble was they were all different colors and things i would quite like to be able to grow coleus that are uniform and you know there is a series called the kong series and they're quite large and i think that if you've got some, I, I, i'm thinking of my front door here and i'm thinking of container growing plants in in, in future years the container um, containers containing the Kong series of coleus would be a good thing to have, I think. I don't want them all over the garden, but just, you know. I'm such a huge fan. And this year I've tried, I've bought probably arguably too many different colours and I've been sort of dotting them about and trying different combinations. And my absolute favourite, I think it's called Pink Chaos. And that is the perfect name for it. Just bright pink and green and they're all sort of frizzly. And I've combined it with the maidenhair fern in a pot and it brings me such a huge amount of joy. And it's in front of that Hakanakloa macra aureola, if that's the right name. And just all of the all the colours together. I love pink and green mm. and uh, always have. And that particular, that, that's sort of on the edge of this corner of the patio that's actually working. A part of my garden I'm pleased with. I, <laughs> I'm glad I'm sitting down as I say that because it's, <laughs> it's very rare that I can say that. But I'm I'm absolutely ecstatic. And I think I saw the lovely Jack Wallington comment on that plant or, or mention that plant. He also is responsible for me buying the Begonia Rex Black Knight. And mine is so small. It's such a little baby. And it looks sort of happy if a plant with two leaves can look happy. But I saw one and I don't think I took a photo of it, but I saw the most phenomenal mature plant at York Gate by the by the plant sales area actually it was just there to make us all covet it and want it and flomo over it and it, i really hope i can keep mine alive for years so it can turn into this fabulous lustrous enthusiastic characterful plant well you know the begonias especially the cane begonias and and the um, begonia rex types um, they make fabulous, fabulous uh, bedding plants for the summer. I've got a little border outside my back door, which we planted yesterday. Um, and there's various um, begonias in there that, that really are houseplants. Um, but they, like us, of course, benefit from a summer holiday. And so uh, they get, go out there and they get taken out of the cops and planted in the ground. When they're dug up in the autumn, sometimes they sulk and they look a bit gloomy. But, you know, they come back and they look lovely. And one of the treasures that, uh, that I've got out there is an impatience and it, it was um it was known as impatient sultanii it's now got another name and it was the one that grew on everybody's windowsill when i was a boy <laughs> and we used to make hedges out of it because it roots like anything in just in jugs of uh, glasses of water and we used to make hedges out of it in the summer um in our garden and you know you suddenly get a, a thunderstorm and half the hedge would be battered down and all the rest of it and so you'd prop it up with sticks and a week later you wouldn't even know it happened because it grows so lush and so quick and that's out there as well and I, in, incidentally you just reminded me i have a tray of cuttings to pot so i must pop off 
<laughs> well, anyone who's paying attention will have noticed quite how many clock chimes have happened in the course of this podcast. So we have been talking for a while. Thank you so much. I am feeling buoyed and ready to, to embark on a day probably involving quite a lot of watering, uh, as every day does at the moment. And, and more feeding. That's what you've inspired me to do, Alan. A lot more regular feeding at half strength. Half strength, I think it's the key. It's the key forward. It really is. And I mean, it does make so much difference. And the other thing I would just say, if your plants are looking particularly one, you know, pale or one, I mean, a little foliar feed. I mean, seaweed um, foliar feed is it doesn't have to be a foliar feed specific, but a seaweed fertilizer used as a, in a spray as a foliar feed really can make a world of difference. Don't forget that tip tip of the week (laughs) (laughs) until next time mr i've enjoyed it it's marvelous thank you very much happy gardening everybody i'm void i'm (laughs) void hey thordis here just to say thank you so much for listening to talking dirty you are now officially our favorite person if you really liked it please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week and as you're our new favorite person we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.